can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I also have some good stuff in a blog that I started a little over two and a half years ago. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Monday, August 16th, 2021. And in this episode, I want to talk in a little more detail about the NCAA's newly found quest for relevance in the regulation of college sports and in the college sports marketplace. On August 1st, I published an episode titled NCAA Desperation Escalates. And that was based off of a statement that the NCAA released through Bob Gates, Robert Gates, one of its quote-unquote, independent Board of Governors members, in which the NCAA announced the formation of a constitutional committee that was designed to take a holistic look at NCAA governance and the entire NCAA business model through the lens of aligning responsibilities with authorities. That's the new buzz phrase. And when I published that episode, there were some things that it now appears really influenced the timing of that announcement by the NCAA and Gates and its relevance to the rapidly evolving and changing environment in college sports and the college sports marketplace. And when I put together episode 45 on August 1st, I didn't have the benefit of three important pieces of information that now in retrospect, I think are really important in taking a look at what the NCAA is trying to do here. We didn't have on August 1st, the Kaplan report on gender equity. I talked a little bit about that in the last episode, but didn't really put it in the context of how that informed the NCAA's thinking on this new constitutional committee. Then we also didn't have the announcement of the committee members. So we had this press release on July 30th, but we didn't have the full roster of this constitutional committee. We have that now, and I think that may be important when you look at the people on that committee. And then the other thing, and this may be the most important thing in terms of this notion of aligning responsibilities with authorities, was the August 11th release by the Committee on Infractions of its public decision on its investigation into the Baylor Athletics Department, primarily football. That has been going on for almost a decade. I'm going to talk about that report because it's really interesting in how it frames the issues here and some of the things that it doesn't talk about. Again, so much of the NCAA's propaganda campaign is based in large part on what it ignores what it purposefully ignores rather than what it addresses. So we're going to look at all of those things. But looking back now with the benefit of those three additional important events, it appears to me that on July 30th of 2021, just 17 days ago, the NCAA obviously knew that the Kaplan report was going to come out on August 3rd. In fact, the NCAA essentially directed the Kaplan team to get that report in before the August 2021 Board of Governors meeting, and that was scheduled for August 3rd of 2021. It is also obvious now that on July 30th, the NCAA and the Board of Governors knew that the 
Baylor decision was going to be published at any time. In fact, the NCAA had complete control over when that decision was going to be published because the Committee on Infractions is an arm of the NCAA, and although they tried to pitch themselves as quote-unquote independent, they are NCAA insiders by and large. And So we're going to talk about the infractions and enforcement process. And back in that episode 45, when I was talking about Gates's press release and the NCAA's press release on July 30th, it was cryptic. It wasn't quite clear what their motivation was for the timing of the report and the, the timing of this constitutional committee. And, you know, Gates couched it. He, I mean, he came out and said, look, the NCAA is in a battle for maintaining relevance in college sports, and we need to make some big changes here in NCAA governance and how we do business. And looking at the substance of the Kaplan report, the, the, the composition of this committee, this constitutional committee, and then the uh, substance of the Baylor decision puts that into much sharper focus for me now. And I think we need to reevaluate this constitutional committee and the restructuring of NCAA governance really through a public relations lens right now because we have two really bad things coming out for the NCAA. It's Kaplan Report on Gender Equity. At least that's how it was pitched in the public. And I think that was how it was received in the media as a bad report for the NCAA because of its inaction on gender equity. And then again, that goes back for, I don't know, 50 years. And then we had this uh, Baylor report that really pointed out again, the shortcomings in the NCAA's ability to address conduct that it has no regulatory jurisdiction to address, either because it shouldn't be fishing in that pond or because NCAA regulations don't authorize the NCAA to regulate in that area and to address the kind of conduct that they want to address. And there are two primary areas where this tension arises. One is in regulating academic misconduct. And the UNC case is a good example of that, the UNC scandal, where you had uh, widespread academic fraud. And it wasn't just limited to athletes. It was pitched as an athletic scandal, but it, it went really beyond that. And ultimately, the NCAA said, look, this isn't an NCAA issue. We don't have the explicit authority to regulate in this area. And this is an institutional issue. This needs to be addressed at the institutional level. And then the other area, and this one is relevant to the Baylor inquiry and the investigation there, is the regulation of really bad behavior that encompasses criminal behavior. And in this context, it related to sexual and interpersonal violence. And there were some really bad facts here. And this is reminiscent in some ways in a different context of both the Penn State case and then the Michigan State case. And we're going to talk about that too. But the central question here is if there are failures at the institutional level, and that was true in the academic side with UNC and on the criminal behavior side in the Baylor case, what role does the NCAA have? And in both of those cases, external commentators, and also actually with the UNC case, and that's close to me because I'm in North Carolina and I, I followed that pretty closely, but you had people saying, look, the NCAA should step in here. This is in the NCAA's wheelhouse. And their failure to act here is a blow to the integrity of college sports. And then the same thing we are hearing on the back end of this Baylor case, the NCAA needs to come in and do something. And its failure to act makes a mockery 
of the NCAA's claimed commitment to all of these fluffy principles that the NCAA virtue signals through its constitution. And one of the most important things to take away from this discussion about the tension between NCAA responsibilities and authorities is that the NCAA actually has virtually zero responsibility for the things it leads the public to think that it does. So when you go through the NCAA constitution, it's set forth as principles. Article 2 says principles for conduct of intercollegiate athletics, and it includes the principle of institutional control and responsibility, the principle of student-athlete well-being, the principle of gender equity, the principle of sound academic standards, the principle of non-discrimination, the principle of diversity within governance structure, the principle of rules compliance, on and on and on. The only principle there that has any consequence is the principle of amateurism. And why is that the most important principle? Well, because it is the vehicle through which the NCAA justifies fixing the price of labor in revenue-producing sports at the value of an athletic scholarship. That's it. And that is a principle that is limiting athletes' rights, not promoting them. And all of these high-minded principles that are contained in Article 2 of the NCAA Constitution have virtually no value because those values are not protected in organic NCAA legislation that would permit the NCAA to come in and through its infractions and enforcements process, enforce those principles. You can't do it because the NCAA has chosen instead to legislate only in areas that protect the labor pool and control the labor pool. And when you look at the NCAA Division I manual, it's divided into three basic sections. The first is the Constitution. The second is the operating bylaws. And the third is the administrative bylaws. And the operating bylaws are the laws that you would expect to find explicit legislative authority to deal with academic misconduct and fraud and unaccountability and to deal with sexual violence and protecting the basic integrity of interpersonal relationships and then gender equity and Title IX and all these things that the NCAA virtue signals incessantly as part of its business model. But those operating bylaws don't say a doggone thing about any of those issues. When you look at what it does talk about, let's just go uh, through here. Let's see. The NCAA manual is about 450 pages. The operating bylaws take up probably close to 80% of that. And so there are, let's see, how many articles under the operating bylaws? You have articles 10 through 21. The ones that go to the core substantive areas of NCAA legislative jurisdiction go to the following things. First, Article 12, amateurism and athletics eligibility. And Article 12 is really the, the heart of the NCAA governing bylaws and operating bylaws that really regulate amateurism, which means that bylaw goes directly to enforcing the fixed cost of labor. Uh, Article 13, recruiting, controlling the labor force. That's, what, that's all that's about. 
Article 14, academic eligibility, but this is only the, the bare minimum eligibility requirements. This article in the operating bylaws doesn't address academic misconduct and academic fraud at the institutional level. It doesn't get to that level of detail. Then Article 15, financial aid. That is really where the NCAA defines what is pay and what is not pay for purposes of enforcing its amateurism rules. And that goes to fixing the cost of labor and controlling the labor force. Article 16, awards, benefits, and expenses for enrolled student athletes. Extra benefits. And we're going to talk a lot about this in the Baylor context. And then you have what I think is one of the most important operating bylaws for the actual implementation of NCAA rules and regulations. And that is Article 19, the infractions program. And I would say probably after the principle of amateurism, the NCAA's infraction program, how it is organized, how it exercises its power, and how it has abused that power is probably the most scrutinized component of the overall NCAA administrative state. And there have been criticisms of the infractions program that go back really to the 1970s. And I, I want to talk about that because that is where the rubber meets the road in identifying this tension between the lies that the NCAA tells in its constitution about how it defines its principles and its commitments to the athletes, and then the reality of how it actually legislates. And it was that tension that the Committee on Infractions really focused on in this Baylor decision, which came out just, what, five days ago. When we go through that decision and we look at how the committee actually applied all of these NCAA operating bylaws, you really can see how dishonest the NCAA has been about its true authorities. Remember, even though Gates and now Mark Emmert, Emmert released a statement after the Baylor decision came out, and he used the same tagline that we have to align our responsibilities with our authorities. But lost in that vague buzz phrase is the fact that the NCAA has for decades fought like hell to limit its responsibility and its accountability for the very principles it sells to the public, to the member institutions, and it sells in the marketplace because th those things are an important part of its business model and its marketing and its branding. All those principles in the NCAA Constitution, those are commodities to the NCAA. And that's what it sells, not just for commercial purposes, but also to justify its nonprofit status. So I think now reverse engineering this constitutional committee announcement in, in light of the Baylor report and the Kaplan report, and then looking at the composition of this constitutional committee, I think this is as much a public relations ploy as an honest and authentic attempt to look at the NCAA's governance model and its regulatory authority. Because again, a lot of this is stuff the NCAA could have been talking about decades ago. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why now? And this brings me back to something I just have to say again. I said this in episode 45, but I just really need to reinforce this. And that is that if the NCAA had been successful in its Iron Throne campaign for the for supremacy in college sports regulation, and it had gotten 
federal antitrust immunity, and it had gotten preemption over any and all state laws that are inconsistent with the way the NCAA wants to operate its business. And if the NCAA had gotten a declaration that athletes can't be employees, we're not having this conversation. We're not having this overhaul. But the NCAA wouldn't really care that much because it wouldn't have any external regulatory threat that could come in and force it to change. That is not the case right now. So let's not be fooled into thinking that this is something that the NCAA would have done or would be talking about even if they had gotten what they wanted in the summer of 2020 and they had gotten what they wanted from the U.S. Supreme Court in Austin. We wouldn't be having this conversation at all. And all the things the NCAA is talking about in its constitutional committee and changing the governance of the NCAA and of looking at the right relationship between responsibilities and authorities, those issues have been present in the NCAA business model going back to the 1970s and accelerated after Board of Regents and the commercialization and professionalization that followed from Board of Regents. So having this awakening, this great awakening in the summer of 2021 is nothing more than a statement of what is obvious. And I think Gates got as close to that as anybody's going to get when he said the NCAA is in a battle to be relevant in the college sports marketplace. So this is, again, more smoke and mirrors that is as much public relations policy as it is commitment to actual change. And it is an undeniable truth that the NCAA is here today because it has been forced here by the very external regulators it sought to eliminate in its Iron Throne campaign in the Senate and in federal courts. So let's just be clear about that. That's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this stuff. So what I want to do is talk about this interplay between responsibilities and authorities. And it's going to require a discussion of this infractions and enforcement process, which is the vehicle through which it has to manage the tension between those two components of how the NCAA operates. So I think for organizational purposes, I want to talk first about the NCAA's responsibilities. And then I want to talk about its authorities and some authorities it has sought to acquire over the years. Then I want to talk about this Baylor decision because that really is a good springboard into the history of this infractions and enforcement process and this tension between responsibilities and authorities. So let me talk about how the NCAA has avoided its responsibilities and its accountability for the principles that it plasters in its constitution and all over its marketing and branding and how it sells and commodifies those principles for commercial gain. And I'm going to do these in chronological order. And the first item up is the NCAA's avoidance of responsibility for fairness and how it enforces its rules. And that came to a head in a 1988 U.S. Supreme Court decision titled NCAA versus Tarkanian. And that involved Jerry Tarkanian. And I've talked about this case a lot, but the fundamental issue there was whether the NCAA was going to be held to federal due process requirements. And the NCAA hated Jerry Tarkanian. They went after him with a vengeance. And the Tarkanian NCAA battle is legendary. Books have been written about it. It went on for, I don't know, almost 30 years. And it began in the late 70s. And Tarkanian was the head basketball coach at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And he was perceived by the NCAA and accused by the NCAA of being a bad actor, a rogue 
actor and the renegade and they wore the black hat and it was a classic NCAA overreach and they played into this black hat, white hat, uh, bad actor dichotomy. But Tarkanian didn't back down. So he took that case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, or the NCAA actually appealed from a decision of the Nevada State Supreme Court, and that's one pathway to get to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the basic issue that Tarkanian was pressing in his original litigation is that the NCAA just walked roughshod over his due process rights, and it was a kangaroo process and a kangaroo court, and there's no question that it was. And that's the reputation that the NCAA has always had in its infractions and enforcement because it operates like a covert government, a secret government that tells you nothing about how it does its business and then meets out punishment through allegations that are based on innuendo, rumor, speculation, and oftentimes just defamatory uh, statements. That's how they do their business. That hasn't changed, in my judgment. They've tried to pretty it up a little bit, but those concerns continue today, and they have never been put to rest. But Tarkinian said, look, the NCAA, because of its authority to basically force state institutions, and UNLV was a state institution, to do its bidding in punishing people subject to its authority. So Tarkanian is an employee of UNLV. So the NCAA comes into after a kangaroo investigation and says to UNLV, you got to take action. You got to get him out of here because he's bad news. And if you don't do that, we're going to bring the hammer down on you. And Tarkanian said that was state action. And in order for federal due process rights to attach, you have to be what's called a state actor. And that means that the authority that's acting is doing it under the color of state or federal law. And Tarkanian said, look, this is state action here. They're, they are acting as a government and they should be held to federal due process requirements. The United States Supreme Court said no. It was an interesting analysis, but the U.S. Supreme Court basically said, and relying in large part on the overall composition of the NCAA, which is about 50-50 public institutions versus private institutions, that it didn't have the patina of a state actor and that it could hide in this private entity camouflage and not be viewed as state actors. It was viewed as a private, nonprofit, voluntary association that wasn't subject to federal due process requirements. And that single decision was so important in the evolution of the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process because it basically gave it the green light to run roughshod over people who were subject to its jurisdiction without the fear that there was going to be any meaningful consequence for that. And that's true today. That is true to this very day. And there have been commissions and external regulatory suggestions and congressional hearings all dedicated to that single issue, and that is the out-of-control infractions and enforcement process. And that started in 1991 with the Lee Commission. The NCAA commissioned former Solicitor General Rex Lee to look at the due process issues, and they came out with a bunch of recommendations, only a few of which the NCAA adopted. But it was clear after Tarkanian that this was kind of good dynamic because the NCAA had successfully removed itself from responsibility for basic due process requirements. And then there were hearings in Congress in the early 2000s. I talked about that in my series on pay for play. But this theme resurrects itself again and again. 
and again. And then the Commission on College Basketball formed in 2017 in response to basketball allegations. And then they issued a report in 2018. And they looked at the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process and how it tried to regulate college sports and and how it could keep it clean. And they found some fundamental shortcomings in the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process. And the other thing that I think is important to point out with Tarkanian is that even though it was in the due process context, what the U.S. Supreme Court essentially said is that the United States Constitution and its requirements doesn't apply to the NCAA. Then the other thing that I think is important about that is it suggests at least that the NCAA isn't subject to public records laws. So as a consequence of Tarkanian, the NCAA basically is taken out of liability for some of the most fundamental protections that our federal government provides. So Tarkanian was 1988. Then the next big avoidance of responsibility event for the NCAA was in 1999 when it completely dodged responsibility under Title IX in this Smith case. And I talked about that in the last episode. The Kaplan Report on Gender Equity talks about that. And in framing the issues from the very beginning, it lays out really what is possible in trying to forced the NCAA to take action on some of these lofty principles. And one of the problems that the report identified right off the bat was that the U.S. Supreme Court in 1999 held that the NCAA, the National Association, as a separate corporation, a voluntary nonprofit organization, couldn't be held responsible under Title IX because of precondition to being under the jurisdiction of Title IX and having any potential Title IX responsibility or liability is that you receive uh, federal funds in the educational setting. And the NCAA doesn't receive federal funds. NCAA doesn't issue scholarships. They talk about that. And they claim credit for all these scholarships that are offered at the institutional level. But the NCAA is really not involved in moving that education-related money in the system. It has zero responsibility for that. And they pointed that out in Smith. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, yeah, you're right. But if you can't make that link between federal funding and the entity that's taking action, then there can't be any Title IX responsibility. You have to go to the institutional level. And the mere fact that the NCAA is comprised of institutions that are subject to Title IX liability isn't enough to essentially transfer that liability to the NCAA. So Title IX, check. You know, due process, check. Title IX, check. Then at or about the same time, and I believe this decision may have come out in 19... 99 as well, or maybe 2000. There was another case that was floating along the time of Smith, and this one related to Title VI, which was a race-based statute. So Title IX and Title VI provide statutory remedies, not constitutional remedies, but statutory federal remedies for discrimination on the basis of sex with Title IX or the basis of race with Title VI in, in higher education if you receive federal money. So there was a case called Curitan versus NCAA that was moving through the Third Circuit, which is where the Smith case came through. And in that case, the a group of black athletes were claiming that some of the NCAA's academic restrictions and requirements were racially discriminatory. I, I'm not sure if, what the range of their claims were, but it was a race-based claim. And they made some arguments on the applicability of a federal law like that or like Title IX that were different from the arguments made in Smith. So people who were disappointed that Smith let the NCAA off the hook for Title IX responsibility thought, well, maybe these other issues that, that will be addressed in uh, Curitan will 
breathe life back into the Title IX issue. But the Third Circuit basically shut those arguments down, followed Smith in terms of, say, an NCAA, because it doesn't receive federal funding, can't be responsible under Title VI for race discrimination. You have to go to the institutions. But that was important, too. So now the NCAA, you got due process, check. You got gender equity, check. You got race, check. Off the table. No responsibility. So now let's go to the next part of the firewall the NCAA has built around its operations and its national office, and that is the O'Bannon case and a limited form of antitrust immunity that came out of that. I've talked about this at length, both leading up to the Austin decision and after it. And that is that the NCAA struck down amateurism rules. It did no such thing. And in the way that it indirectly brought in the ruling in O'Bannon, which provided the NCAA with qualified antitrust immunity for any payments that are unrelated to education, which means no free market for the value of athlete service, that ruling was reinforced in Austin because it was incorporated into the Austin decision. So on the backside of Austin, you have a tacit adoption of this partial antitrust immunity. So even in the context of amateurism, which has taken such a beating, when you actually look at the law, you actually look at the ruling, you actually look at where the NCAA sits on the backside of Austin, even though I think they've overreacted to that decision. And the language in that decision was very bad. I've talked about all that. And the unanimity was horrible for the NCAA. But the actual ruling itself and the fact that it just swept O'Bannon in without any critical evaluation of how it used amateurism to support the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism to limit remedies was actually a pretty good thing for the NCAA. So you have that's part of the firewall that nobody's talking about and didn't talk about during Austin. And I tried to get that on the table and it just didn't gain much traction. And then the next thing, okay, so what do you have now? You've got due process, check, no responsibility. Gender equity, check, no responsibility. Race discrimination, check. Qualified antitrust immunity that supports your amateurism model check. What's left? Well, you don't have a lot left. And in this last thing I'm going to talk about, I think it's important to observe that in the the prior elements of the firewall and eliminating responsibility for all these things, the athletes were not really directly challenging at an operational level, that is a business model level, all this propaganda that the NCAA puts into its constitution. And then the tension between that and the interest it actually protects through NCAA legislation and enforcement infractions, which are purely commercial. They have nothing to do with all these fluffy principles. But in 2015, there was a lawsuit that went directly to challenge all of these promises that the NCAA puts in its constitution, all this propaganda that the NCAA sells and markets as a commodity, and it has enormous market value. But all that stuff creates a general legal obligation on the part of the NCAA to stand by those principles and to stand by those representations and to stand by those promises. So in 2015, a handful of former UNC athletes, all African-American, men and women, sued the University of North Carolina and the NCAA, claiming that the academic fraud that they were steered into in these bogus courses that were the subject of the UNC investigation. The athletes were saying that that was a breach of an obligation that the NCAA voluntarily assumed. And under 
equitable principles, not under a statutory provision, not under a constitutional pr provision, not under a formal legal contract provision, but under principles of equity, under principles of quasi-contract and breach of fiduciary duty. The NCAA had assumed an obligation to act in the best interest of the athletes and its failure to protect them from this academic fraud was actionable because of the promises that the NCAA makes repeatedly about his commitment to academic integrity. And the name of that case was McCants versus NCAA. It really went to the heart of the NCAA's false promises. And that complaint, the McCants complaint, was over 100 pages. And what the attorneys did there, and it was a really interesting approach, they went through and they pulled out from the NCAA Constitution, from NCAA propaganda on its propaganda website, from public statements made by NCAA representatives, and from congressional testimony. All of these self-righteous statements about the NCAA's commitment to integrity, the integrity of college sports and academic integrity. And they pulled provisions of the NCAA Constitution and made the case, look, this is what they're promising. In response to that lawsuit, the NCAA said to these athletes, we owe you nothing. We have no relationship with you, no direct relationship with you that would give rise to any legal or equitable responsibility to you. We have no contract with you that would give rise to any legal responsibilities on our part. And we have no moral, equitable duty to you to protect you from academic fraud. If you have a problem with it, go to the institution. And at a purely legal level, that argument had legs because the athletes don't have a direct relationship to the NCAA. The athletes aren't members of the NCAA. And because the NCAA does virtually nothing for these athletes, it's all done at the institutional level. And they don't offer athletic scholarships for athletes. They're not involved in that market at all. They really are one step removed from the institutions. But that lawsuit just pointed out the sheer hypocrisy of these statements that any reasonable person who read them or heard them would say, this entity is assuming responsibility for these things. They're assuming responsibility for gender equity. They're assuming responsibility for racial equity and fairness. They're assuming responsibility for fairness in the adjudication process. They are assuming responsibility for academic integrity. They are assuming responsibility for athlete well-being. They're assuming all these responsibilities because those are explicitly stated in their constitution. And remember, this is a constitution. It's not a press release. It's not a statement from some committee that they throw together. This is the NCAA constitution setting forth the principles that it professes to be built around. And in practice, it does not stand by a single one of those principles. Not one, except the principle of amateurism to the extent it's used as a way to uh, artificially limit the compensation of the athletes who make the NCAA's very existence possible and Mark Emmert's $4 million a year salary possible. That's it. So I won't keep you in suspense on the result of that McCants case. The NCAA filed a motion to dismiss based on the fact that it owes these athletes nothing, zero. And after the briefing on 
the NCAA's motion to dismiss, the court held oral argument on that motion. And during oral argument, the NCAA cited a case. They also cited this in their brief. It was a Ninth Circuit case that stood for the proposition that statements like the NCAA's statements, absent some explicit undertaking of an affirmative legal obligation, are nothing more than, quote, vague and hortatory, unquote, proclamations. So basically, nothing more than an advertisement. The NCAA's constitution is just advertising its uh, principles, and they don't have to stand by them. That's how the NCAA argued this case to a federal judge. And guess what? The federal judge granted the NCAA's motion to dismiss. So that then begs the question of what the hell is the NCAA talking about when it is saying we have to align our responsibilities with our authorities? And I just want to go back to Robert Gates's comments in this press release announcing the Constitutional Committee. He says, under the current structure, expectations for the association vastly exceed its capabilities. The NCAA has significant responsibility, but little authority to fulfill those responsibilities. Until we can better align the mission of the association with its authority, the NCAA will not be able to play the role it should play in governing college sports. We cannot go on as we are. So what significant responsibility is Gates talking about? He doesn't say. Wouldn't you like to know what the significant responsibilities are within that impermeable firewall that the NCAA has built to any responsibility for the principles it claims to hold? Identify those responsibilities for us, Mr. Gates. But rather than holding our breath to wait for Gates to identify these significant responsibilities or, or anyone else in the NCAA machine. I think we can look at this a different way. I don't think Gates is really talking about the actual responsibilities or any substantive responsibilities that the NCAA has, because as we've discussed, they have very few responsibilities and none of them are directly linked to the principles set forth in their constitution. What I think Gates is really saying here is that the propaganda that NCAA has spun around the constitutional principles that it doesn't have authority to enforce and has no intention of enforcing has increased expectations. And earlier in his quotes, he talks about the expectations. And I think that's really where this is coming from. The NCAA has led the outside world to believe that it has authority to address all of the areas covered in the NCAA Constitution, including all of the academic fraud issues that arose uh, from the UNC case or the sexual misconduct and criminal issues that arose from the Penn State, the Michigan State, and the Baylor cases. And why wouldn't the outside world, notably consumers of college sports, believe that about the NCAA's responsibilities? Because the NCAA has led them to believe that those are within the NCAA's sphere of responsibility. So this isn't about substantive responsibilities that the NCAA has. It is about managing expectations downward to have perception align with reality. And again, they're doing that through a public relations campaign built on bluff and bluster rather than meaningful change because there really isn't anything to change except the expectations and the rhetoric. That's it. And there's another layer of analysis here, and that is because the NCAA only regulates in the area of intercollegiate athletics, if the misconduct that the NCAA is seeking to redress is not 
unique to the athletic component of the institution's operations, then it really doesn't have jurisdiction. And they found that in the Baylor case. So what they found was that this was an institution-wide failure. And it existed on the non-athletic side as well as the athletic side. And in that sense, it was similar to this UNC case. They had the same issue at UNC because these fraudulent courses were not designed specifically for athletes and they were not populated exclusively by athletes. This was a general university issue and the university should have had responsibility for that. The same is true at Baylor. This is just a complete failure of leadership up and down the chain of command on Title IX issues on gender awareness issues, on sexual violence issues, on interpersonal violence issues. All of those things were not just failures in the athletic department. They were failures at the broad university level. So the NCAA from an enforcement and infractions process, and as the opinion of the uh, Committee on Infractions noted, there were a number of barriers to them getting to this conduct. When I go into the actual report, the tone of the Baylor decision from the Committee on Infractions is really defensive because they knew, given the extent to which the NCAA has propagandized all these principles that it had no intention of standing by or enforcing, that the Committee on Infractions was going to get blowback. That's why I think now, with the benefit of hindsight, looking at what's transpired since the NCAA and Gates initiated this grand public announcement about uh, the constitutional convention. This is really as much an issue of optics as it is of substance, because what the Committee on Infractions concluded in this case is no different, really, than what the NCAA concluded with the Michigan State case and what it probably would have concluded with the Penn State case if it had actually even gone through the enforcement and infractions process. And I'll talk a little bit more about how the Penn State and Michigan State scandals fit into this theme when I talk about the Baylor decision. So I think I'm going to wrap this episode up having talked about the NCAA's responsibilities or lack of responsibility and accountability because of the aggressive campaign that it's had really going back to the Tarkanian case in the 1980s to avoid responsibility for all these values it claims to hold. But the next episode, we're going to talk about the authorities and the way that the NCAA and Gates have framed this issue in terms of an alignment between responsibilities and authorities, you get the impression that the NCAA is going to back off of this public relations perception that it is responsible for enforcing issues at the institutional level that it has no business being involved in. And that's the other point. I didn't say this up front, but in my judgment, the NCAA has zero business going in and telling institutions how they should handle academic integrity issues and criminal issues and issues regarding sexual violence and interpersonal violence and compliance with Title IX or Title VI or any other federal statute and all the things that can only be addressed effectively at the institutional level and then with all the satellite checks on the system like law enforcement and the potential liability under federal law, which does attach at the institutional level. It just doesn't apply to the NCAA, at least it hasn't so far. And if that's where the NCAA is heading in terms of analyzing its responsibilities, that would be a good thing just to make it very clear what it's not going to get 
involved in. That does not mean that in looking at its authorities that it is suggesting that it doesn't need any additional authorities because it is limiting its responsibilities. And you really have to look at the history of how the NCAA has viewed its authorities and how it has aggressively pursued really important extensions of its authority that get very little attention. And I want to focus on that because some of the language that I've heard coming from NCAA interests uh, swirling around this constitutional committee lead me to wonder whether they may not be making a play for greater enforcement authority. These two things are not necessarily linked together. They can decrease their responsibility and avoid all these public relations nightmares by simply acknowledging and putting into its governing documents the true limitations of its responsibility. And they can do that and also at the same time say, wait a minute, we're going to stay out of this stuff. The conferences and the institutions should be addressing this stuff, the kind of things that arose in the UNC case and in the Penn State case and the Michigan State and the Baylor case. So those responsibilities properly reside with the conferences and the institutions. But at the same time, we also need beefed up enforcement tools in order to do the righteous work to preserve the integrity of college sports in the areas that we do have responsibility for. And that means that after you strip away all the fluff from the Constitution and look at what the NCAA cares about, that goes to preserving its business model and enforcing the recruiting rules, enforcing the amateurism-based rules, however they're interpreting them now after Austin, and all the ways that the NCAA controls the labor force. The NCAA has tried in some really sneaky ways to beef up that authority, and I'm going to talk about that in the next episode because the NCAA wants to have the authorities of the federal government, of a police state, of a law enforcement agency. And some of that comes through in this Moran bill that I'm going to talk about where the NCAA essentially would be given subpoena power to <laughs> preserve the integrity of college sports and weed out all these bad actors and all that stuff. But I think we have to keep our eye on that ball because I don't think that the NCAA is abandoning that initiative. And then another thing that I'm going to talk about just a bit is this prisoner's dilemma between the Power Five, the evolving Power Five, and the NCAA, because in all of this discussion about realignment, all this discussion about the NCAA's relevance and its restructuring of its commitments and its responsibilities and its authorities and all that stuff, nobody is asking whether the Power Five or what's left of the Power Five are going to reside within the NCAA or outside of the NCAA. And there's obviously a lot going on behind the scenes. And again, I've heard some things, you know, I've developed this intuition based on things that come out in the media and who they come from. And SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey made some comments in really the only article I found addressing the NCAA Board of Governors and the Division One Board of Directors decision to essentially eliminate this independent adjudicatory process for complex infractions cases that the Commission on College Basketball strongly suggested and really built its recommendations around. And that was an important move that didn't get a lot of attention. And the fact that Greg Sankey was pushing for that was a little bit of a red flag to me. And one of the things that I've talked about in the context of this prisoner's dilemma is that the Power Five get enormous benefit from being under the NCAA umbrella. I'm not going to go through all those reasons, but when you look at all of the 
ways that the NCAA has built this firewall around responsibility for how it conducts its operations at the national level. The Power Five get enormous benefit from those protections. And as long as the Power Five are flying under the NCAA flag, to the extent the NCAA is using these immunities at the national level in a way that benefit the Power Five, like the Tarkanian decision, which gives the NCAA this carte blanche to do whatever the heck it wants to do without any accountability. Uh, the Power Five would be well advised to think long and hard before leaving the NCAA. And what you might be seeing here is a readjustment of the relationship between the new football product, however it's going to be aligned on the backside of all this conference realignment, and the NCAA. And what the NCAA gets out of that is a commitment from the big-time football interests that are driving this realignment that the NCAA bureaucracy will be safe and secure because they're going to keep their pipeline of March Madness money. All right. So with that, I'll close this thing out. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 